How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. How you doing? How you doing, Dr. Joe? I'm doing well, Tom. How about you? You know, it's it, not bad, Dr. Joe. I uh, I finally bit the bullet and got a new car. Not a new car. Whoa. But a, a fancy car by my standards. It is a 2012 Honda Civic. Oh my gosh, Tom, you're you're yeah. living outside your means a little bit here. Don't I think? I think so. I'm gonna have to. I mean, I'm used to eating green beans. Stop and shop brand green beans, no sodium. But uh, shout out to Brianna Wu, past guest, who is a bit of a car aficionado. I asked her, hey, what's a good good sedan style car in my price range that costs nothing to repair and can last forever? Hey, wanted me to Ally Motors and Whitman. There's there's my plug for the night. Well, I mean, she's always been a vehicle for change, so that's great. Oh, thank you. But speaking of vehicles for change, in the real way who has a voice that I hope more people will hear. Tom, could you please introduce our guest for tonight? Absolutely, Dr. Joe. Tonight, we are welcoming back past guest Patrick Girondi, originally from the south side of Chicago. He's an Italian-American singer, songwriter, author, and founder of San Rocco Therapeutics, a gene therapy company focused on bringing a safe and accessible cure to sickle cell disease and thalassemia patients. Gerondi has released seven music albums, and Skyhorse published his Wall Street Journal number one bestseller, Flight of the Rondone. Gerondi's new book, New City, will be published by Skyhorse and distributed by Simon & Schuster on February 14th, 2023. Gerondi is also the author of Diamond in the Rough. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Thank you. Yeah, welcome back, Patrick. It's so good to have you here. So I'm I'm just going to hold up the the book, New City. a story about race baiting and hope on the south side of Chicago by Wall Street Journal bestselling author Patrick Yorondi. Thank you. Tell me about the book. How did how did this book come about? Well, um, so I'm doing a deal. Uh, Tony Lines of Sky Horses flying in. I'm in Tampa at the moment, where we have San Rocco headquartered. And Tony Lyons is flying in on February 15th. And I, the intention is to sign another three book deal. So um, when I see a situation um, in my past, I try to think of a way that I can solve it kind of without solving it. Um, you know, when you go to people and you say, you're doing this the wrong way, it's not necessarily very efficient, um, but if you can entertain them and say the same thing basically with your entertainment, then you've got a hell of a lot better chance of winning them over. So New City is a very interesting book for me. Um, I loved doing the background um, check of the Chicago Stockyards. So the Chicago Stockyards which were around, I mean, there's still some small companies, but their heyday ended in the 80s. And, uh, you know, it was 
two square miles of butcher, a butcher house and incredibly interesting place to live. And next to the stockyards, they needed a place to put the workers. And that's what new city was. It was a place to put the, you know, for the most part, there were Slavs, a lot of Slavs. I mean, there was everything, of course, Italians, Irish, you name it was there. Um, but there was also a lot of Polish and Ukrainian, uh, Lithuanian uh, in the area. And they were tough people. And it was an interesting area. And they started closing in the 70s. And of course, when all of the jobs left, uh, the neighborhood turned from being mostly Slavic to being somewhat Hispanic and then almost almost all black. And I took the idea of writing this book from my friend, Davy Polenik. So I lived in uh, New City for about a year and a half or two years. And uh, I shined shoes on 51st Street and 47th Street with Davy. Davy, he describes himself as just, you know, a Polak. Um, he had 11 brothers and sisters. And um, I knew all of them, or at least, you know, by to see them. And uh, he ended up after the neighborhood went black, he stuck it out and he kind of became like a sage and um, just an incredible person. And I use that. But a sage a, in what way? How was how Davy a sage? Well, New City, I would say 10 to 15% of the homes don't have water. I would say that, oh gosh, 5% don't have any electricity. Um, a lot of them don't have heat. Davy doesn't have heat. He has electricity, no water. Um, but it's kind of a dismal place where um, there's poverty, all different kinds of poverty. For years and years and years, the biggest business was the drug deals and prostitution. Um, and Davy stuck it out. And there's so many wonderful, decent people that came into New City looking for another chance. And David, Davy was like a magnet to them. So, you know, I would come over to his house and I would see that he had a line going from the telephone pole you know, into his backyard and then over to the neighbor's house, the neighbor, Napoleon, five kids. And Davy hijacked the electric wires so that Napoleon, you know, would have electricity for his kids, for his five kids. And um, <clears throat> Davy, I always, I say in the book, he could fix everything from a bo broken pipe to a broken heart. <laughs> um, he's just a, just a great guy. And you guys were childhood friends? Yeah, me and Davey, we like I said, we uh, were shoeshine pals. And I, I think there's something magic about the relationship between shoeshine buddies. I, I want to hear about that. <clears throat> What's magic about it, Patrick? Well, when you're a shoeshine, like we were, you're eight, nine, ten years old. And I, I did it all the way up till I was about 12. And you got to be very alert. To watch that there's no people passing or no kids passing on the street and that might be a sign that there's bullies up ahead you go into bars basically and you have to remember the bar that you can go in at such and such a time 
the bartender that throws you out, the bartender that gives you a bag of barbecue potato chips. Um, you have to be very careful about eyeing up the people that you ask if you could shine their shoes. Obviously, some of these people are down and out for a lot of reasons. Um, obviously, you know to go in on Friday afternoon when people get their paychecks. But um, we were robbed a couple times, me and Davey. And I'll never forget one morning, four or five guys came up to us and they said, give us your money. And that wasn't really a problem. And we gave them our money. And then they said, give us your boxes. And uh, I said, please, you know, this is how I make my living. I can't give you my box. And one of them made a mistake to reach for Davy's box and boy, did he wallop him. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I think Davy's a lot tougher than I am and a lot stronger. And he was just going like a windmill. And of course, I gained the the courage from watching him. And so then I just started, you know, but the, the five guys kind of ran away. And uh, that was last time we had any problems. But my sister, Bernadette, was making her communion and my mother didn't have money for a communion dress. And so we were borrowing a communion dress from a Mexican family that went to the same St. Augustine school. And so that, you know, the Mexican girl would make her communion on May 10th. And then my sister would make it on May 17th. And I knew that there was no money to buy any kind of a gift, you know, for my, my mother and uh, who was a single parent. And so I told Davy in the morning, you know, this is what's going on. And we planned and we started out in the morning at Laughlin. We usually started and then we passed Ashland and we did all the stores up to Damon. And then right after Damon on the north side of 51st Street, there was a jewelry store. And if I remember right, it was 51st Street jewelry store. And um, so we walked in there and I eyed everything. And the guy said, yeah, what can I do for your son? kids and I said how much is that Timex that girl's watch right there and he says oh you know it's eight dollars with tax it costs you eight fifty so okay hold that watch don't sell it to anybody now, of course you probably <laughs> how old were you how old were you that how old were you Patrick I would have been about my sister would have been about eight so I would have been oh. about 10 or 11 okay great Go ahead. Hold that watch. Hold that watch. You know, and like I said, the guy was probably laughing a little bit because, you know, Timex watches, he had a, he had them. So uh, me and Davey, we hustled and we just, you know, putting our money together and we got all the way to Trumbull. That's where the railroad tra tracks were after Kedzie Avenue. And that was our last bar all the time. And we knew we closed at five o'clock. So we, you know, timed it you know, to get to Trumbull by three and then have two hours to get back and, you know, get the money that, you know, make the money we needed. And we raced and we raced and we did what we could. And it got to be about five minutes to five. And we were 10 or 15 minutes away. And I looked and I had like $7 and 29 cents. And uh, I said, Davey, we got to go and try to make a deal with this guy. I says, you know, we've got to hurry. So we ran like hell and uh, went into the shop. The guy was waiting for us. We arrived like one minute after five or two minutes after five. And uh, 
I said, sir, I said, here's all the money we got. Me and Dave, we put all of our money on the table, on the counter, the glass counter, and he counted it out. He said, you're about a dollar 20 short. And I was destroyed, of course. And uh, I said, sir, if you give me this watch, I promise you, tomorrow I'll get up after my sister's communion. I'll I'll shoe shine on Monday morning. I'll have your dollar twenty. I promise you. And he looked at me, and I'll never forget. He says, "Kid, I I don't work that way." And Davy reached and started to get the money. And I said, "Hold on a minute." He said, um, here's the watch. Took the watch out. This one you want? I said, yeah. He said, I'm going to gift wrap it for you. He said, uh, the $1.20 I'll put in for your sister's communion. It's my mm -hmm. gift. And you you just live, you know, eyeing up somebody's shoe to figure out how you're going to get it clean first, maybe. And a lot of times Central Steel was on 51st in California between California and Kedzie. So a lot of the guys had, you know, um, dirty boots to clean and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, you had to eye them up and you had to figure out what's the best way to get that stuff off of there. And what's the best way, you know, to make sure I can make it look you know, proper, and he's got broken shoelaces. Do I got, did I bring shoelaces long enough that I can, you know, maybe get another quarter off them? And it's just, it's a wonderful thing. And Davey, today, I talked to him yesterday on the phone, actually, um, because I sent him the book. He said he was afraid to read it. And uh, I said, well, don't, you know, Davey, don't be afraid. You know, it's, you're really an inspiration to me. And uh, he said he was going to read it today and tomorrow. But uh, yeah. I mean, shoeshine buddies are, I don't know. It's a great story. I mean, I tell my great sons, story. Well, I tell my sons, I said, when I die, you know, put on the, you know, the casket. It was a, it was a good shoeshine. Hmm. Well, it's a great story. I'm glad that you were able to lace that up at the end with that wonderful adage. But the passion to help someone the commitment to helping someone, being willing to work hard to do that, and then somebody else recognizing what you've done and contributing as well. I mean, it's it's a wonderful story. If only the world could be more like that. You know, when when we were talking before the show, you were you were wondering whether people would would be listening and reading New City. Um, tell me a bit about that. Well. You know, you're saying that, you know, the world would be nice if we could start, you know, caring about each other and helping each other out. And I really believe that we did uh, a lot more than we do today. And, you know, when I talk about the book, people, I'm a, probably a difficult guy to get to know, but in my lifetime, when I was 15 years old, I, w I got fired from, uh, I was working at an Italian restaurant as a busboy from the time I was about 12 to 15, and on 63rd in California, and I got fired. I got fired because I was playing dice with uh, the other two other busboys in the 
guy that delivered the fruit. And uh, the boss's son, who didn't like me, not that I cared too much, um, he uh, he came out, and we were in the back shooting the dice, and uh, I was on my knees, and I went to grab one. I threw the dice, and then one went a little further, and I went to get the one that was closer. The one that was further was kind of still going. I knew it was a three. They all knew I had a three here. Of course, I was hoping for a four on the other one. And I put my hand on the dice and he stepped on it. You know, I didn't see that he was there. And I got fired. And one of the waitresses, her name was Elaine. She knew I was a hustler and I, she knew how badly I needed the money, that my family needed the money. She got me a job at uh, Northwestern Hospital on Chicago Avenue. And I'll never forget, I was 15. I was going there to wash, be a dishwasher. And the whole, everyone that worked in the kitchen was black. Every one of them. And when I got there, you know, I was like welcomed like, a, you know, a tax collector or something. You know, they looked at me and a lot of them weren't too happy to see me or probably curious or wondering what I was doing. But I started working there. And um, there was a guy named Kevin. And Kevin was, you know, I don't know, two or three years older than me, tall, lanky guy. And he wasn't crazy about what I guess he considered himself a white person. I mean, I never, I never, and when we were growing up, I, we never knew what white was. I mean, you were Irish or Polish or you were, you know, Mexican and uh, Lithuanian. I mean, it was just, it, and it's, it, and it's incredibly damaging what they've done to this country by turning people into Crayola colors. I mean, it's just idiotic. I mean, you know, forgetting about what cultures that each one of our families is derived from and just saying, now you're a, you're a Crayola color. I mean, me, because of our Italian ancestry, my nephew, Anthony, I mean, he's dark. He look, you know, people guess, what is he, Arab or whatever, or even my son, Chicho. But, you know, for them to tell you in your you know face, and I've had this argument from time to time where I said, I'm not white, I'm Mediterranean. And, you know, my people are from the Mediterranean. We're, we're Mediterranean or we're Latin. You know, um, you know, no, you're not, you're white. Uh, it, it's really, it's, it's really crazy and, and it doesn't make any sense. And they're use it. It's a type of race baiting. It's a type of getting, you know, people to hate each other for their either political gain or economic gain or whatever it is. But I, I get there and, uh, this guy wanted to beat the shit out of me. So it started out that, you know, a cracker you know, stop working so hard, you're making us look bad. And uh, to, you know, I'm going to slap you if you, you know, don't start, you know, stop washing the dishes. And I'm like, hey, I need this job. I'm not going to stop washing the dishes. I need this job. And he bullied me. And there was this big, heavy woman on the soup line. You know, you called it a soup line, but it was more than that because they put jello and they put corn on the cob, or not corn on the cob, but corn. And they put mashed potatoes and all of that. And all these women were all in white and they had these big mesh over their head and you could hardly tell what their faces even looked like because they had mesh just over the eyebrows to everywhere, you know, to keep the hair out of the food. And one time uh, Kevin Bryce caught me coming out of the locker room. I just changed and he grabbed me and he put me in a headlock and he punched me in the forehead and getting ready to punch me again when all of a sudden I felt like this vibration that went through his body into my body. 
it was kind of surreal. And it was Big Mama, one of the ladies from the kit, the, from the line. She hit him in the back with a, with a soup ladle. And she said, Kevin, I told you to leave that little skinny little white boy alone. He's half your size and, and this and that. And oh, my God. And she just walloped him and, and saved me. And it was tough for me because, you know, it, you know, you got to go to work. It's 30 below zero sometimes. You know how Chicago is. And, you know, I'm running from school and <clears throat> trying to get there on time. And it was bad enough without having to worry about getting beat up every day. But uh, Mama saved my life um, a couple of times. And um, then I went into the military. So I got in trouble at 16. I went in front of Judge Clarence Bryant. And uh, Judge Bryant was on 61st and Racine. The courtroom was above, above the police station. And I went to, you know, I went in front of him 50 times, or it seemed like 50 times. And uh, the last time, I, I believe it was, I was stealing a uh, battery out of a police car on 35th and Low. And uh, I got caught by this big Polish copper named Dombrowski. And he really disliked me. And I was a, I was a smart aleck, you know, I told him, yeah, you know, how are you going to make your mile and a half in 15 minutes? You know, I was a wise ass and, uh, he wanted me so bad to go to, you know, to jail and I was 16 and Clarence Bryan, I'll never forget it. I'm saying, you know, I'm really gonna have to make up a good one this time, this, you know, cause I never would go with my parents. I could never tell my mother and break her heart. And, and I didn't have a father to speak of. And I went there Young man, I'm tired of looking at you. Uh, when does he come back? November 8th, Your Honor. Young man, on November 8th, you're going to bring me enlistment papers to the military branch of your desire, or you're going to jail. Well, back then, the only branch that would take me was the Air Force because they had what was called the late enlistment program. And uh, so I went, my mother signed the papers and then they would take me when I was 17. They would tell you the month and all of that. And, uh, you know, Clarence Bryant saved my life. Big mama saved my life. For me, they were never black people. They were good people. And you know, growing up as an Italian, you know, I started out as an Irishman, actually, because that was my last name. And I, I have my mother's maiden name now. But I mean, you know, we were people and it didn't matter. You know, if, if your great great grandparents came from Lithuania or Scotland or if your parents came from Cuba or Uganda, you know, if you were a good person, you were a good person. And. We didn't have the media, the presence of the media that we have today, that with TikTok and with Facebook and with all of the other venues, just come in there and tell you, you know, what it is you should be thinking and doing. I mean, we really, the country is a tyrannical place. I, one nice thing about going back home to Italy is that we don't have all of this nonsense, but the United States of America is being ripped apart by race baiters and Sometimes it's so hard to understand what they're gaining by trying to, you know, tell black people that white people are oppressive and that all of their problems is because they were slaves. 
I mean, this is the this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. I mean, that young man, he could be a young black kid, 14 or 15. Do you think him you're doing that kid any favor by trying to sow into him angry and hatred? I mean, it I've never seen anything so absurd in my life. These people I I, I, you know, jail is too good for these people that are devising these things at these universities or wherever they're doing it at. And that's where the idea for New City came about. And I said, you know, I'm going to write about a story about people who love each other. And, you know, this whole idea of colorblind, you know, nobody's colorblind. You know, I love women. I'm not crazy about redheads. You know, we're all prejudiced about something. You know, some guys like girls with big breasts. Some girls like guys with nice teeth. In one way or another, we're all prejudiced. We all have what we like. And what they're doing is trying to turn this into being a criminal. Because maybe I love dating fat women and I don't like skinny women. So I'm a skinny shamer or I'm a fat shamer. And this whole idea of putting mannequins out there that are fat and overweight. I mean, I constantly wrestle with myself because, and other people, because I say, no, if you fat shame someone, you do it because you love them. Of course, you don't want to do it in the spirit of hurting them. But in the end, if you love someone, you smile at them. And I recently did it to one of my attorneys. I said, you know, I love you. And I want you to be around a long time to work with my company and work with us. But it's not healthy to be overweight like that. You got to lose some weight. But instead, you've got Victoria's Secrets, Target, all of these places trying to make these people buy their clothes or whatever they're doing. I mean, you're pushing unhealthy mentality, unhealthy lifestyle. And what are you doing that for? For money? And then when I go and say, hey, Joey. How you doing? I seen you lost yourself two pounds. Keep it up. I like that. And they'll say, you know, how how did you? You're such a, a you're fat shaming people or you're you're hurting people. But so black people. And then if we go on, I went into the military. Hold on one sec. Let me let me stop there a sec because you, you're you're talking a lot about something that I talk about a lot, which is that basically people have the opportunity to remind somebody else of their value. But we've spent a lot of time devaluing each other and then astonish the other person does the same back to us. And this is part of what is causing the division. This division that we create, that we, you know, have a culture now where sometimes you're not allowed to say the old jokes that you used to say before because people get really offended quickly. Tyrannical. It's tyrannical. And somebody wants to call the United States a free country, I tell them to rot of their mind. I yeah. mean, you know, I, I realize that people would like, you know, to defend their country because they love it. And of course, I love my country. But because I love my country, I believe that I have to say it is not a free country. It's a tyrannical country. Well, there's there is something about about the the awareness, because I think that's that's part of what what people are are teaching me is that some of the things that I may have been saying for years innocently without any malice can now be interpreted as not so innocent and a bit more malicious. The, the question I have is that that's, that's 
somebody else's interpretation. My intent, however, is never to devalue someone. Judge me by my intent. And that was one of the great words. And I know that this is not popular any longer either, but Robert E. Lee was, is my favorite American, my favorite American. And if anyone has ever read about him, I've written, read, read, not written, five or six books about him. After the Civil War, that war could have went on and on as guerrilla warfare, et cetera. And he said, no, that's it. And then he went on to be the president of the Washington Lee University in St. Louis. But what a gentleman. He did more than any person in our country, north or south, to after the great division to put things back together. And he's a wonderful man. And he was a gentleman. And, you know, people, they don't want to talk about it. But the fact of the matter is that Lee was asked to lead the North, Northern Army. And mm -hmm. he said, where goes Virginia is where I go. So if Virginia had decided to go with the North, then Lee would have been the head of commanded the Northern Armies. Virginia went to South and Lee commanded the Southern Armies had nothing to do with slavery for Lee. Um, like I said, I've read five or six books I've extensively on it, but what a man. But our country today, where you're taking down, you know, Christopher Columbus statues, they took down two of them in Chicago. Um, and I mean, it, it's just, it, it, it's it's literally, it's, uh, it's a tyranny. And the people can say that they're doing it in the best interest of fat people, ugly people, homosexual people, uh, white people, uh, brown people, uh, people that think they're in other sex or in the wrong body, they can say whatever they want. But what they're doing is tyrannical, tyrannical, and it's destroying the nation. And that was one of the reasons why I wrote New City and sewed these things together. And I want to loop back into that when I was in the military, I was in basic training at Lowry Air Force, or not Lowry, at uh, the Air Force Base in, um, oh gosh, San Antonio, San Antonio Air Force Base. And that's where basic training was. And I was a wise guy. I was a punk. You know, the Gresham was my uh, drilling sergeant. And they tried to, you know, intimidate you and bully you. And I, you know, I'd look at him. I'd smirk. And he'd push me and shove me and kick me or whatever. But, you know, I'd get up and you know, I knew what, what's he going to do? He ain't going to kill me. He can't kill me. You know, so, so he gives me a slap. So what, how many times I was slapped? I didn't care. And I, I didn't like him and he didn't like me. And he tried to get me thrown out. And again, I was saved by staff Sergeant Smith. So they were going to give me an undesirable discharge. I was 17 years old. I would have been back home to Chicago I wouldn't have probably had a lot of choice. I'd been robbing cars again or doing, you know, I mean, I drove a truck after, but I mean, I, I was mischievous. Let's put it that way. And I go in front of the staff sergeant, Sergeant Smith with uh, Master Sergeant or Staff Sergeant Gresham. And Smith was a Master Sergeant, tough little guy. I say little guy because he wasn't much taller than me. And uh, Gresham was just, giving them 5,000 reasons why I was undesirable and why I had to be put out. And he listened to Gresham and he looked at me and he said, boy, 
You're going to get one last chance. And if you let me down, you're going to be out of here. And he saved my life again. Another black guy. So first I'm sorry, saved by Clarence Bryant, who sends me to military, then or first Big Mama, then Clarence Bryant, and then Sergeant, uh, uh, Master Star Sergeant Smith. So, so in other words, it's, I agree. It's, it's not about race. I it mean, ain't about race. It ain't nothing to do. Start, Sergeant Smith could have been green or red or whatever, but I happen to know firsthand that we're all brothers and sisters. I mean, you know, I'm a Catholic and I've got many patients who are Muslims because our biggest and Hindus, our biggest, you know, uh, population for thalassemia is actually in India. And I've been there yeah, many times. Patrick, I don't think, I don't think people know that part. Oh, I'm the sorry. Story, right. <laughs> Unless they listen to the other episode. I'm sorry. I apologize. No, no, that's good. Why don't you, why, why don't we just make a, a, a slight deviation from that and tell them why thalassemia is so important to you. And then we can move on with that. All right. So, um, all right, we're going to have to get back into the loop, but we will, I will, I will bring us back. Believe me, I, I'm good at that. All right. So, Anyway, I I uh, end up getting an honorable discharge from the military. My mother had a lot of trouble at home, and she wrote to the Red Cross, and I ended up getting out. And I thank God, an honorable discharge. And I ended up driving a truck for a while and loading docks. But by luck, I ended up at the Board of Trade and Chicago Board Options Change in Chicago. I was on Oprah Winfrey's show twice. Um, the first time, Rags to Riches story. I was in Playgirl magazine as one of America's most eligible bachelors. Um, there were, I don't know, 15, 20 articles uh, written about me and about my fortunes and my personality. Um, I was the youngest uh, ever to run for a countywide office in Cook County, which is the where city of Chicago's in. And I finally got married and had my son, Rocco. Now, my grandfather with my mother helped raise me. Um, and I have my mother's maiden name. And it was so important for me to, to call and to name my son Rocco. And I had traveled back to Italy to visit my grandparents' family and roots and there was a big fbi sting going on at the board of trade and i disappeared for two years and rocco was born in italy he was diagnosed in 1992 october with the mediterranean anemia so that the love that i had for my grandfather and being of Italian descent on the Mediterranean brought my son a sickness. And me and my wife were both carriers of the Mediterranean anemia, which is also called Cooley's anemia or thalassemia. And my son had the disease. And uh, it was 1992, October. And for him to live, he needed to transfuse blood because he had a hemoglobin, which is the oxygen carrier in our body of about seven. 
and it's meant to be and it was meant to be and um i at that time didn't want to transfuse him for any reason because hepatitis c and aids virus were rampant yeah. in the blood they hadn't discovered the antibodies yet so i took him and flew to san francisco to spend time with a very courageous Korean doctor. Hmm. And for me, you know, again, I, I, it drives me nuts to these calling people Crayola colors. I mean, I, so anyway, you know, what, what, what was my Korean doctor? Was she yellow? I mean, it's just, does she have to write yellow on her? I mean, it's just nuts. So, um, but her father was uh, American and he worked for uh, in Saudi Arabia. Aramco. Her mother was a Korean nurse and she was very Korean looking, very exotic looking is her name is Susan Perrine. And she had an experimental medicine that my son could take that would stimulate his hemoglobin to rise. And we did that. And for about 40 days in the hospital, it was about $70,000 and he had to live in the hospital. Well, we couldn't do that very long. So I opened up a medical center in Italy and I flew Dr. Perrine back and forth. And we actually had my son on arginine butyrate. His hemoglobin went up to about nine, nine and a half, ten. He was able to live normally, except he was hooked up to this pump for about 16 hours a day, stimulating his hemoglobin. We ended up having 38 patients, did clinical trials in Italy with the University of Milan, University of Bari, Taranto, Sick Children's, and Boston University because the, my, uh, the Dr. Susan Perrine went from San Francisco then to Boston, uh, BU. And uh, my son avoided, you know, blood transfusions all the way until, I'm going to say, 98, 99. And if he would have started and done that, you know, five, six years of blood transfusions, you know, he, he, he got away with doing over a hundred blood transfusions at a time where you really didn't want to do them. And with all of the damage that comes with the blood transfusions. So, um, I started in 93, the drug company that's today called San Rocco Therapeutics. Um, in 95, I was joined by John Walton of Walmart, John's son, had Wilms tumor, his only child. And there was an application of arginine butyrate for Wilms tumor. John put in 20 million. And we were partners from 95 to 2004. In 2000, I met or I, I read the Nature Magazine article about gene therapy, saving six generations of thalassemic mice. I found the researcher wonderful man, Michelle Settlin. He was working at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And I ended up licensing his technology. John Walton, after in 2004, his son was doing fine. He didn't need to worry any longer about arginine butyrate, saving his son if he relapsed. He just handed the whole company to me. Just, yeah, I'll never forget, I was on the trading floor. Pat, why? John Walton's on the phone. Hey, right, hold on. Johnny, what's going on? Well, you know, Lucas is doing good. 
uh, I want you to just save Rocco. I'm going to give you everything. And back then it was called Beacon Pharmaceutical. I'm going to just give you Beacon. Johnny, thanks. Well, I, I mean, these are, these are true stories. Right. Um, Patrick, I'm not sure which one has more meaning to you, the company or the Timex, you know, because they're both great stories that are recognizing part of you, that you person who wants to give back to the world. So Patrick, these are wonderful stories about people giving, recognizing something in you. Well, thank you very much. I really, I don't want to say I appreciate the compliments because it's hard for me to take compliments because um, I believe that um, I'm not that bright and I just do um, what a good Catholic uh, should do. And I, I really believe that there are millions of parents out there that would have done a better job than I was able to do. Um, but I do appreciate what you're saying. And I do think that stories like the ones I'm telling you today, which are all true, and I could go on and on and on and on about people who, you know, love others and mm -hmm. help me out. You know, the, my first book was called Flight of the Rondone. And I don't remember if you remember why I called it that, but the Rondone is a bird that flies from Northern Africa uh, or actually Southern Africa and lays eggs in Altamura and it's around for three or four months. And it flies up to 140 miles an hour. And when it collides against something and falls to the ground, it can't raise itself up because its wings are too long. And so it's always got to land on high so it can throw itself into the wind. And so when we find one of these birds on the ground, we have to pick them up and throw them into the air. And that's why I got the name of the book, Flight of the Rondone, because so many times in my life, whether it was the Walton family, whether it was um, Master Sergeant Smith, whether it was Big Mama, whether it was um, Clarence Bryant, Judge Bryant, um, and pick me up and, you know, flew me high enough so I could start, you know, flying again. So... Mm -hmm. But thanks for the compliment and all that. I, but again, um, I mean, I, I can take it back if it bothers you, Patrick. I mean, yeah, they, yeah, yeah they right. I mean, you know, yeah. But um, but the the message that you're trying to get across in New City is it? I mean, the idea of race baiting. Can you just talk a little bit more about that before we get to? Yeah, the two well, questions? you know, when we were growing up, the race baiting race baiters were to, were a lot of it was white on black, you know. I mean, of course, I remember the race baiters could be on Irish and Italian. You know, the Dago's got big noses. They all, you know, eat eat garlic, you know. So, I mean, there was more names for the Italians than anyone. It was Dago, Guinea, Wap, Greaseball, Garlic Eater, Spaghetti Bender. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And, you know, people would, you know, try you to get you not date an Irish girl because you were Italian or whatever it was. And that, in a certain sense, that was race baiting. Or they would get you not to sit next to the black kid at school because black smell and you know all of this race baiting yeah absolutely and today we have race baiting but in the opposite way so today you know everybody's telling you know white people are privileged white people had slaves white people are this white people are that it's insanity you got colleges talking about taking away points from asian students uh, because they work too hard and they their scores. I mean, it's just, it's insanity. And this whole idea of identifying Americans, I mean, we're all Americans, case closed. 
but identifying well, I, Americans of Crayola colors is like, right. I mean, it's like, it's crazy. I, I, I'd say it goes even beyond being all Americans. I mean, we're all one species. It's called humanity. We're one group. It's called humanity. That's part of what we're trying to get across with the Dr. Joe show is let's look at who we are and why we do what we do. But without that judgment, with that respect, I mean, what is going on that the best a person can do is the race baiting? What's happening in their life that the only way that they can feel valuable is to put somebody else down? And we have this not just at an individual level, but at, as you say, at, at a cultural level. But we don't need to do that, but we still do. So it's it's a really important subject. Tom, do you, do you want to chime in on anything? You've been listening. I mean, it's a very understandable reaction to, you know, the big sea change is that like the idea that white people are under attack or that I should be guilty because I'm white. I don't have a guilty bone in my body. I can still recognize that there are, you know, injustices that, you know, there's not a brick wall between yesterday and today where we can just brush under the rug, say that uh, we we address it and let's move on. Like there are things like crack, how crack form carried a average 50 times worse sentence than powder cocaine. And if you look how that wound up, that meant more black people going to prison. Still mm -hmm. does. I can I can address that without saying that I'm guilty of anything. Like slavery, what mostly white people owned slavery. You know, there were American Indians owned slaves, there were black people owned slaves. It was mostly white people. I'm not guilty of that. I didn't do that. All right. I right. can address that the legacy of slavery has carried over to today because slavery is not entirely abolished in the 13th Amendment. You know, after the abolition of slavery, quote unquote, complete abolition, we had convict leasing. In some ways, we still do. But the idea that we had vagrancy laws where if a black person was just found on the street, if they couldn't prove that they had a job, they went to prison. Mm -hmm. We, yeah. I, I didn't I never learned about that. But but there and I don't think you probably never did it either, though. I never did it, and I'm not yeah, guilty about yeah. it. And I don't think that many people are trying to make me feel guilty. The reflexive idea that it's an attack on me, uh, it's inaccurate, I would say. I'm sure that there are definitely people who are going to say that I'm bad because I'm white. They're fewer and far between than you think. Hmm. Thoughts, Patrick? Yeah. So, um, where did we leave off? We talked about the flight of the Rondoni. We were talking about how how people who are not of your particular look, like what you look like, still helps you. And how I think New City uh, is also an opportunity to help a lot of people, no matter what color of crayon they may be yeah i mean new city so it's hilarious um but new city you have i don't know how many homes are left in new city let's say it's five thousand homes but you have homes that are literally worth ten thousand dollars and they owe two hundred thousand dollars in property tax mm -hmm. and and uh uh fines for grass cutting garbage on the property no fence no sign on the property etc and it's hilarious and people say well that's impossible, but I can tell you that's not impossible. The, the city of Chicago, the loop is a very pristine center. And you don't need to meet five miles from the loop. You have property that is worth negative money. 
you can't pay somebody to take that property because they know it that if they take the property not only do they have to pay taxes but the city goes around the internal revenue agents go around in the morning and if there's a bottle on the property they take a picture six hundred dollar fine some of the fines are a thousand dollars grass cutting i think is a thousand dollars and these people you know they can get in a year twenty thousand dollars in fines and they can't pay them and these fines when Rahm was elected the mayor in, I'm going to say 2010 or 12, I don't remember exactly, they, you know, grass cutting was $50, garbage on your property was $50, you know, th those were the fines. And all of a sudden they went to $600. And I remember I wrote something somewhere. I said, if they really wanted to, you know, erase the deficit from the city, why didn't they just make them $6 million? Because those people can afford $600 as much as they could afford $6 million. I mean, they don't have money to buy their medicine and you're going to ask them for $600 because you believe that their grass was too, it was too tall, for example. So that's what's going on in New City even today. And then because it's so close to the loop, the developers want the property so that they can regentrify it. And it's kind of this crazy thing. But now because of all of the violence going on in places like New York and Chicago, the regentrification has slowed down because people don't, they don't have the courage to do it any longer because they're afraid to go out of their homes. You know, you got Chicago, I think it, you know, 800 murders a year. I mean, you know, Chicago is about 800,000 people less than the city of Rome. Rome has about 50 murders a year. Chicago's got 800, you know, and Chicago's not even in the top 25 in the United States for violence, by the way. You know, you right. got, you know, you got cities like East St. Louis and, and St. Louis and Detroit and Memphis and Nashville. I mean, it, it's just incredible. So the regentrification in Chicago has come to a skidding halt and you've got these poor people. They live in a building that they couldn't sell for $5,000 and they owe, you know, property tax. And some of these, you know, you have a house that's worth $5,000. Guess what the property taxes, some of them, $5,000. Hmm. It's insanity, but yeah. that's what's going on in New City. And in the book, Davey and his next door neighbor, this is where I go off from reality and I kind of make the story up a little bit, decide they want to move to Greencastle, Indiana, where Davey's father's friend, who's 94 years old and wants to go to California and live with his nephew, is going to sell Davey a spread, a couple acres with a pond and a little house on it for $10,000 because Davy's his best buddy's friend. And uh, Davy and the next door neighbor, Napoleon with his five kids, dream of getting $10,000 plus $3,000 for moving and everything. And they're gonna save that money and then they're gonna abandon their homes and let the gentrification come in or do whatever is gonna happen. And they're gonna go and, and live in Greencastle, Indiana. And that becomes the kind of the dream of the book. So that's the hope. That's the hope. the hope. That's the hope. and. You know, the hope is too, I mean, I, I've seen it happen. Guys die and people don't have money for funerals. So you got to kind of go, go to the back door to funeral home and, you know, kind of make a deal with them and the bodies are stiff and you don't have the money and you can't figure out how you're going to do with the police. And if you involve the police and, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff that, that goes on for people that live in poverty and, and don't really have the, the means to live in, in a way that Oprah Winfrey lives or, you know, or Magic Johnson could live or who I know, by the way he was in playgirl with me or uh, uh you know um michael jordan can live you know so yeah. they don't have this um that luxury yeah. and um so many of us 
So many of us. Yeah, they're right. And it's just so crazy. So, it's so let crazy. me ask, because we're, we're coming to the end of the show. And what we talk about here is the I am approach, that we're all doing the best we can. Influenced well, by no, the but we're not all doing the best we can. That's, that's one yeah. of the problems. But and, you see that, but you and I can have another show about that because we can yeah. absolutely talk about, about even that is an I am, right? But we're influenced by the home, the social domain, the biological and the IC. So because these four domains interact, a small change can have a big effect. Patrick, given the topic we're talking about tonight, what small change can you recommend to our listening audience? As I said, because of my pharmaceutical company, I've been to India many times, and I have patients of every creed, religion, nationality that you can imagine. And I'm Catholic. And when I talk to them, whether they're Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim, whatever it is, you know, I tell them, you know, for me, I'm just lucky because I'm a Catholic. And I'm not going to argue about Jesus being God or not being God and all that. But this is the way I live my life. And Jesus could have gotten away from dying on the cross, kind of like Socrates. You know, Socrates, he could have told the Greeks, all right, I'll stop messing with you. You know, I'm going to stop busting your balls or, you know, I don't I don't want to drink the hemlock. But instead, he said, hey, f I'll drink the hemlock. And Jesus did the same thing. Jesus could have told the, you know, the rabbis and everything. Yeah, don't worry about it. The poor people, screw them all and, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll give in to you guys. And you know, they wouldn't put them on the cross anymore if he would have apologized, kind of what they did to the people for January 6th, it looks like. Um, but Jesus didn't because he loved his principles. And that means that he loved humanity. And that means that he loved humanity and we are humanity, that he loved us more than he loved himself. And so and the small change would be what? Excuse love me? Others. The small change. For our audience, based on that story, is love. Yeah, I mean, well, okay, but I'm sorry, and I don't want to go over or whatever. But you know, and he also said, "He without sin, throw the first stone." Mm -hmm. And he said, "We are all brothers and sisters," mm -hmm. and and we are. And so, the small change, you know, all you got to do is uh, care about the next guy. Like, what's the old song? Uh, take a take a walk in a mile in my shoes or take a you know and right. uh, and that's it yeah so that's a good small change to remind each other of their value not a bad thing the second truth of the i am is everybody's interested in what you think or feel about them you're part of someone's home or social domain and you know it has an effect on their biological domain it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected so because of this, we control no one, but we influence everyone. You control no one, you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Patrick Rondi, author of New City and many other books, singer, writer, creator, helper. What kind of influence do you want to be? You said I was a nice shoe shang that tried to do what he could to help other people. And, you know, that's all it takes that if we all just try to get up in the morning and do something nice for, you know, the next door neighbor or kids or whatever it is, that's it. Yeah, it's a great metaphor. It's okay to bend over and 
help shine someone's shoes so that they have a better day. Yeah. I mean, I don't even, I don't even care if people respect me. I don't give a shit about it. You know, people always tell me, Oh, you got to be respected. I don't care. I don't care if you respect me or you don't respect me. That, that, that doesn't change my life. If you respect me, or you don't respect me. doesn't mean that I'm not going to get up and do what I have to do every day. I mean, for me anyway. And that's exactly part of the, I am it's, it's being able to recognize that we're always at our, I am our current maximum potential. Good night, everyone.